Blog Talk Radio. And now, it's time for Healing from Within with your host, Tony Valen. Welcome to Healing From Within. I'm your host, Tony Valen. You can contact me, Tony, at TonyValen.com. Visit our website, HealingFromWithin.net. Follow the show on Twitter, at TVHFW. The show is also available on iTunes and YouTube. Just search Healing From Within with Tony Valen or look for the Tony Valen channel on YouTube. Joining us on today's show is Dean Slider. Dean is a teacher and an author. He is the author of a new book on natural meditation, a guide to effortless meditative practice. You can learn more about Dean by going to naturalmeditationbook.com, like Dean Slider on Facebook, follow him on Twitter, at Dean Slider. Dean, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Wonderful. My first question um, is always the same one. What are your gifts and how did your journey begin? Well, my journey, I would say, began in childhood with uh, certain experiences that I had, um, I, there was a certain amount of quietness, a certain amount of silence going on inside that I assumed everyone else was experiencing. And, and I, I started to find out that that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, and, uh, but it would come and go. And, uh, I had in particular an experience when I was 11 or 12 years old. Uh, my family was getting ready to go to a drive-in movie, which I know that dates me. <laughs> and they sent me out to the garage to clear. I had two brothers, and we had all our junk, our toys and comic books and so forth, uh, in the backseat of the Nash Rambler station wagon, yes. which, which also <laughs> dates me. And, um, and, and my mind, even though there was some taste of inner silence, there was also a lot of busyness. My mind was, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? If this person said that, bup, 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 just kind of going on all the time in this agitated way. And I'm clearing out the backseat of the car. And the next thing I pick up is a Mad Magazine. And on the cover of Mad Magazine, uh, as you may know, as always, is Mad's idiot mascot, Alfred E. Newman, with his, you know, gap teeth and his, his silly grin, and his motto, what, me worry? Mm. And all of a sudden, my mind stopped. I realized that uh, this turning that my mind was doing is what's called worry, and that I was doing it, that there was actually, there was a switch, there's a, a choice to do that, and you can turn that switch off, you can let go of it. And I just suddenly saw that clearly. I let go of it. And I really went straight into what many years later in my reading, I saw, oh, this is what's called satori, samadhi, just being blissfully, infinitely happy for no particular reason. And I just floated through the whole evening like that. So, you know, a few experiences along the way like that really got me interested in, hey, what's going on? And is there a way to be here all the time? And is there a way to share this with others, which really pushed me to become a teacher? Absolutely. And then so this happened to you as a child. Mm -hmm. Did this uh, continually happen as a uh, as an adult as well as and as a teenager? Or did you find yourself going into chaos? Because, you know, as we all do. Yeah, well, there was, you know, all of that chaos that that is normal. And, you know, suddenly your body is being transformed and getting hair in new places. And you've got a different voice and all these hormones are raging. So sure, I went through all of that. 
But there was always at least, you know, sometimes the taste of that inner silence and if not the memory of it. You know, how do we how do we get back to that? How how does that relate to all this other stuff? And I happened to be growing up in California now in the mid 60s. I went off to my first year of college at San Francisco State in 1966. So that meant I was exactly in the right place at the right time uh, where all of a sudden the spiritual meditative smorgasbord was being made available. You had Suzuki Roshi, the first full-time Zen master in the U.S. You had Sufi Sam leading Sufi dances, uh, Swami Bhaktivedanta introducing the practices of, of bhakti yoga, devotional chanting. All of this was being made available, so I could just hop around town and, and taste everything and find what worked. What I found was that a lot of the practices, okay, they, they, they all had value, um, but there were, I realized there were two things that were on my agenda. One was it had to be easy. I tried to be a Zen student for about three days, and yeah. that just required such intense concentration, sitting stock still. I realized, I can't do this. I'm not built for it. And probably that's true for most people. So I realized I had to find stuff that was easy, and I had to find stuff that I could bring back to the suburbs, you know, something that would work for regular, ordinary Americans who were not interested in changing their name to Blissananda or, you know, just right, yeah. to live a, a regular lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And so I was very fortunate to find teachers who are, were representing authentic age-old traditions who showed me that not only is there is an easy way possible, but actually the easy way is the most effective way. Because when you're working at meditation, when you're trying, you know, trying, working at creating a state of non-agitation is itself a form of agitation. Yep. I okay. And so it becomes all that work, all that trying to concentrate, uh, all that trying to make the mind hold still, that's actually the mind trying to do that. It's, it's, it's self-defeating. You wind up like a dog chasing its tail. And what they showed me was that the mind is always really searching for its own innermost nature, that inner silence. Uh, we're just attracted to it naturally. It's like gravity. That's why on, on the cover of my book, to bring out the, this basic notion of natural meditation, I have a picture of a feather settling down, just about to settle down to the earth. When a feather floats out of the sky... You, no one has to push it down toward the ground. Gravity naturally pulls it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, it may drift a little to the left. It may drift to the right. It may get stuck in a tree branch for a while. But it's, it's going to the ground in its own sweet time in 100% of cases. Now, it's the same way with the mind. The mind is, we're in every moment, we're seeking boundless happiness. You're standing in line at Ben and Jerry's, and, you know, tr trying to pick from the menu, what you're looking for there is boundless happiness, but it's not on the menu. So you settle for Cherry Garcia. Mm, right. <laughs> and, and, and that is the story of our lives, really, in, in every moment. So what natural meditation is about is for once allowing the mind, just taking a very gentle, simple turn within and then allowing that gravity to take over. Right. And is that when you, uh, I noticed that in your book, you talk about uh, the difference between natural and unnatural meditation. Right, right. And it's just like, you know, when you go to the food store um, and you look at the label and you see all those unnatural ingredients that you don't want to take into your body. The unnatural ingredients in meditation are anything that feels unnatural, anything that's straining, that's trying to feel as now I'm going to feel spiritual. Now I'm going to force my mind to be silent. Now, you know, any of that, any of that trying, forcing, straining, anything other than just letting the feather settle in its own time is unnatural. Yeah, and I can def definitely identify with that because when I started meditating, I do exactly what you just said. I was forcing myself to try yeah. to stop thinking or stop right. doing this, stop doing that. And uh, right. eventually I got to the point where the only way I could actually get to a peace of mind or into a more quiet statement, right. uh, a state of life or mind, 
is to let my mind, my mind race. And then after I got tired, then I think I'd start, the feathers started dropping, like you said. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I definitely understand. Right, right, right. And, 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 and the deeper you get into these meditative practices more and more, what you realize is that it's not even about the mind. Because mind means mental activity. Mm-hmm. Okay, Mind is like wind. The wind is always blowing. You know, like, where's the wind when it's not blowing? There, there is no, you know, we say the mind thinks as if it's two different things, but really mind is just that activity of thinking. So in a sense, trying to quiet the mind is a contradiction. Mind by its nature is, is noise, it's activity. Mm-hmm. That's the bad news, the, seemingly. The good news is that underlying mind is our deepest nature, which is awareness. Now, awareness is different from mind. Like right now, you're aware of the sound of my voice. You're aware of whatever colors and shapes are in your visual field. You're aware of, you know, maybe some memory of what you had for lunch or whatever. All the all the stuff you're aware of. Now, you're able to be aware of that because before you can be aware of X, Y, or Z, you are aware so you're aware of all these colors and sounds and tastes, uh, just like different um, images showing up on a screen. But awareness itself is the screen. And it's beautifully, deliciously, infinitely empty all the time, even when it's filled with images. And that's really what we're connecting with or what we're we're, we're recognizing, recognizing in meditation is that awareness, which we are really, we are the experiencer of all our experiences. And it, it doesn't have to be silenced. You know, we tr- try to silence the mind. That's a, a never ending process. But we recognize the awareness that underlies the mind, that's aware of the mind and vision and hearing and all that. And we realize that th- that doesn't have to be silenced. That is silence itself. Mm, okay. What's the difference between meditation and relaxation? Uh, that seems like that's mm-hmm. such a simple question, but I think yeah. it's mm-hmm. tough to do. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's important uh, to understand that distinction. Um, relaxation certainly is a, is a very typical byproduct or side effect of meditation. Um, and, you know, people who've been doing meditative practice for many years, you, you can, you're around them, they tend to be pretty relaxed. Um, but um, the difference is, you know, you can get a massage and you know, get a good massage and be deeply relaxed. You can get drunk and be deeply mm. relaxed. Yeah. Um, but if you're not getting the attention turned within to your own nature, which is simply you, the self, the not and not the body, not this thing that has a name, not this thing that has a personal history, but this, as I said, just like an empty screen, this experiencer that's been experiencing all of this all along, then that's that's not meditation. Meditation and and because and and it's is it it is an important distinction because relaxation, you know, lasts for a little while. Fine, you get drunk, you get relaxed. I, I had a wonderful English teacher in high school who used to advise all his students get completely blind drunk once a week, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, uh, and and that was that was the, the that was good advice as far as it went because it meant that at least once a week you got totally relaxed. Now, the next morning, you had a throbbing headache, and all your problems were still there and probably worse. The difference is that in meditation, because we're getting more and more tuned into this silence, this witnessing silence, this beautifully empty screen that we are at our core, more and more that comes out, recognition comes out with us. It's not just all over after 10 or 20 minutes of meditation. More and more as we go through our day, whatever's going on on the screen does not disturb the screen. Um, Actually, this is a a couple of sentences from my book. Um, 
One of the first effects of meditation that many people notice is that anxiety begins to just evaporate. Hey, where'd it go? Situations may remain the same, and responses to situation are still required, but somehow the whole thing has less static cling. You take care of business, and you move on. This can be a revolutionary development in our lives. Almost everyone around us habitually reinforces the notion that worry is a necessary, even inherent part of our grown-up functioning. TV commentators routinely ask experts questions like, do we need to worry about higher taxes next year? Knowing nothing about, knowing zero about tax policy, I can answer that one right now with 100% certainty. No, you don't have to worry about higher taxes. Yes, you may have to pay higher taxes. No, worrying about your taxes won't lower them. Yeah. So, so that's, you know, with meditation, regular meditation, that kind of moment-to-moment transformation of our lives starts to happen. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And how do you know that meditation is working and how long, for a beginner that has never done it before, how long do you think it would take before they start seeing results or feeling results? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you know it's working? First of all, very good question, because I'll tell you how not to do it. And that is, don't try to evaluate it while you're meditating. And everyone does that, by the way. Everyone goes, oh, yeah, I think I'm really getting there now. I'm really settling now. Or, oh, man, nothing's happening. I'm just sitting here. It's just choppy, lots of thoughts. I'm swimming around on the surface. I'm not settling down into it. Um, An old friend of mine, Dr. Keith Wallace, was one of the pioneer researchers on the physiology of meditation back in the late 60s, early 70s. And... um, when he was was testing subjects and finding, oh, your EEG function changes when you meditate and your heart rate and metabolic rate, all this stuff changes. When he was done testing a subject and taking the EEG leads off of their scalp, he would ask them just informally, well, how was that meditation? And sometimes they say, oh, really deep, really profound. And sometimes they say, no, it was really choppy. I never settled down. And what he found was that physiologically, pretty much the amount of settling was about the same in both cases. Hmm. So it, th- that takes the, the, the burden off of you. You, don't, you can't even know what's going on. You can't, no way to evaluate it. And when you try to evaluate, gee, am I getting settled? That, that effort to evaluate, again, itself becomes an unsettled activity. So again, you're chasing your tail. So you just take the attitude of whatever it is, just, you know, what, what the hell, here goes nothing. Uh, the, 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 what's going on is none of my business. Now, after meditation, inactivity is when we can gauge that it's working. And just, you know, as I was just reading, we find that worry starts to spontaneously become less. Not that we take some artificial attitude. Again, that would be unnatural. Oh, no, now I'm a meditator and I'm supposed to worry about stuff. That's, that's so false. It's not going to be sustainable. Um, uh, worry starts to evaporate, clarity gets better. More and more, you just see, oh, here's the, here's the path, here's the situation, here's what needs to be done, I do it. And somehow, somehow there's a deep okayness, a deep sense of, of okayness that is independent of what's going on outside. It's not an attitude, it's not uh, a belief, it's something deeper than that. It is our own nature, which is just boundlessly, bottomlessly okay. And more and more, we feel that. Sometimes other people notice it before you do, because it happens so naturally, so organically. Um, You know, it's like a little kid growing. You don't see the kid growing from day to day, but one day you put his old sweater on him and, you know, the sleeve is up to here. It stops at his elbow. Um, and sometimes other people will say, you know, when a crisis happens, you know, they'll say, gee, Tony, you know, when that thing happened and the flood came and the mortgage was due and the, yeah. and the dog died, and, you know, oh, and, yeah. uh, you know, you were really cool through all of that. Uh, and uh, I didn't remember you being that cool about things that that on top of things. And then, you know, when the other person points it out, sometimes you go, oh, yeah, you know, a year ago, I might not have been. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so let me ask you, I just thought about this. 
What's the difference between, I mean, and is there somewhat of a difference between a daydream and meditation? Yeah, a daydream is, um, it's, it's thinking. It's thinking, okay. it's a form of thinking, it's a form of thinking where we get so kind of, uh, you know, it can have a nice, hazy, kind of relaxed um, flavor to it, yeah. because it's not tied to purpose and intention and having to deal with some external situation. So it's very natural, very understandable, and fine, nothing wrong with it that people, you know, drift off into daydreams as long as you're not... <laughs> driving or operating heavy machinery. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, it, you know, it has a value or we wouldn't do it. Um, but again, just like the question before about relaxation, it doesn't have a lasting value in the way that meditation does. Oh, got it. That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as uh, meditation goes, do you, um, as a tool, would you recommend using a mantra? And why is that important if you recommend that? Mm-hmm. Um, the, there are a number of uh, what we could call meditative on-ramps, okay? A mantra, which is a sound that's been, uh, you know, thoroughly test-driven over many centuries um, so that we know it has a very soothing yet enlivening quality. It allows the mind, it, it, it sort of facilitates the mind settling down and yet remaining alert. Uh, that's one kind of on-ramp that can be very effective. Um, another would be to, um, as a, a very popular practice in Tibet, uh, where I've traveled is what they call Namkai Naljor, with sky gazing, where you actually, and they have very beautiful skies in Tibet. Imagine, what, yeah. what you do is you lie on your back or you sit in a deck chair and you keep your eyes wide open and just gaze at the sky and kind of lose yourself in that. Another on-ramp would be to... Uh, and all of these, by the way, I give instructions for in, in the book because they're all different forms. What's more important than the on-ramp that you choose, the on-ramp that you use is the way that you use it. And the, so they're all forms of natural meditation. If you're using them in an easy, natural, non-forced, non-straining way. So if you take one person and say, okay, I'm going to meditate on a mantra, 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 you know, just banging your head against it. Uh, that's not going to be a very effective. Or, okay, I'm going to meditate on the breath. I've got to keep my mind on the breath and nothing else. Oh, no, now I'm thinking about my dog. Uh, that's not going to be very effective. Yeah. So what I do in my book is I walk people through. Okay, here's how you can meditate on a single breath, sitting at a red light, just with the easiest, lightest attitude. Follow the breath in, just paying attention to it. And then following it out, just paying attention to it, done. Light turns green, off you go. So in addition to having, you know, sitting down for 15 or 20 minutes or whatever on a regular basis every day, which I do recommend, throughout the day, you know, all these times when you're waiting in line at the post office or all these things where uh, we think of as dead time or worse, just time to be annoyed because things are taking so long, these can all be meditative breaks. You don't have to be sitting with your legs crossed necessarily. You don't have to have your eyes closed necessarily. So mantra is fine. And it can be one of the traditional mantras from India or Tibet. And I suggest some of those in the book. Or it can be even, you know, one of my favorite mantras um, is I I got some very good advice once from a friend. I was going through a, a, a rough time emotionally. And she said, she said, Dean, just remember, no matter what's happening, you can never f- feel bad as long as you just say, Wee! <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I mean, it's funny, but it's a very good example because notice what, uh, Tony, I've got to get you to do this. Ready? One, okay. One, two, three. Wee! <laughs> okay. Now, what happened to your face muscles when you said that? Oh, I went into laughter and, and it yeah. struck me up. You can't say we without smiling. Right. And that has to do with that, the vowel sound of E. You know, poets know this. When Edgar Allan Poe is writing a, a poem or a short story trying to make you feel gloomy about the dark night, he uses the dark, the ooh and the oh and the os. I was an English teacher for 33 years. I used to <laughs> teach this stuff all the time. So mantras use that same power of sound, the psychoacoustic 
qualities of sound to help uh, to to facilitate the mind settling down. But again, that's one terrific on ramp. But more important than the on ramp you use is how you use it, which is don't get stuck there. Use it to let the mind settle down for a few moments or several minutes, and then get into the express lane, which is just being, just hanging out, just allowing that natural gravity of the mind toward boundless happiness to, to take over and pull you. So you may have already answered this question, but I'm still going to ask it again, because I, I, I'd like people to know, how did you become a teacher of natural meditation? Mm, yeah. Um, well, we were talking before about my explorations for my own practice, which started really in the 60s. And um, I always felt some, you know, I'm a, I'm a big mouth. You can see, you can't stop me from talking. Yeah, no, that's and, great. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, as, an, as a school teacher, I used to tell my students, the secret to happiness is not getting rid of your neuroses. It's figuring out how to get paid for them. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, you know, my nature is to talk and to share and to teach. Um, so I really found myself early on searching for natural, effective, meditative methods that I could get feel authentically qualified uh, to to teach, and that would be kind of culture neutral, not a lot of baggage of of you know Indian religion or anything else. And um, so I became first I became authorized in 1970 as a teacher of transcendental meditation. Uh, I spent time uh, training personally with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi who became, you know, very famous through his association with the Beatles and, you know, a lot of other kind of high profile people were flocking to him. And Maharishi very brilliantly kind of packaged uh, the idea, okay, here's how to meditate effortlessly, 20 minutes twice a day, don't change your lifestyle, and the, the results just happen. And it really works. So TM is really a very effective technique. Now, eventually, I had to move on. Um, there were things, the TM organization started going in directions that I didn't feel comfortable with charging. Uh, I felt and I still feel way too much money and kind of getting into some, you know, I mean, organizations, <laughs> as they grow, tend, as they grow big, they tend to grow weird. Uh, and so I moved on and found that, oh, good, TM does not have uh, a monopoly on effortless natural practice. So I became involved in with teachers of bhakti yoga and teachers of Advaita self-inquiry and, and a, a number of other teachers who showed me that, okay, here's, you know, uh, Tibetan Buddhist teachers uh, who showed, okay, here are all these, these practices that can be done in this natural way. Yeah. And they encouraged me. And every teach, every really good teacher I've had, I've felt so humbled by. Because, you know, some of these people are so just awesomely enlightened that yeah. I, I keep finding myself going to my teachers with my tail between my legs and saying, how have I ever had the presumption to pretend to teach anyone anything? You know, you are, you know, I'm not I'm not you. And and but they've all encouraged me to teach. They've all said, no, no, you you know enough. And, you know, you're you're good at communicating the stuff you should teach. There are some people that will profit from hearing this stuff from you. Mm, perfect. And for the uh, listeners that don't know what it is, can you explain what transcendental meditation is? Yeah, transcendental meditation is one form of natural meditation which uses a mantra. Uh, it uses a word that's uh, or a sound that is chosen for its psychoacoustic properties, not for any meaning, and uh, you use it internally. You're taught how to just think it effortlessly so that in a in a natural way it kind of melts in your mind the way a cough drop melts in your mouth and then you're left with your own inner silence and it's as i say it's very effective technique you know the one of the things that made me move on was that the the tm people have a tendency to imply yeah but this is the only way only our mantras will work and only our or you know and it's going to cost you four figures to learn and so you know uh, so again, it's great, but it's not the only way. Hmm. I know you did a lot of traveling and researching your books. 
Uh, my question is, in all your traveling, learning, and teaching, what similarities and what differences did you find in meditation in different cultures? Mm. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I would say that everywhere I've been, and and you know, as you say, I've traveled in India, Nepal, Tibet, mm-hmm. uh, and Europe, and the United States. Um, I would say that when it, within every culture, I mean, for instance, I've I've spent once spent three days at the the Bodhi tree, which is the you know the famous tree that the Buddha sat under when he he gained his final enlightenment. And and it's very inspiring. You see people coming from all over the world to to be under the tree. And, and what they do traditionally is you circumambulate the tree. You go round and round the tree, always in a clockwise direction. That's the tradition. And you see people in their different outfits from different countries. And what I would see is that there were some people that you know, you can never tell for sure from the outside what's going on inside another person, but but you certainly get impressions. And some people seem to be really, let's say, there, you know, deeply connecting to that boundless silence that the Buddha connected with and, and wanted to share with everyone. So you'd see some people and you felt, oh, yeah, she's got it. He's got it. Um, and some people you could see they're just there out of like, some belief, a belief system. Yeah, you know, by you know, this is the church I went to on Sunday. I went to Buddhist church, and I'm here for and maybe very beautiful belief, but it's just belief. And then you see some people who are straining; they're working so hard at chanting their mantra or you know working their beads and all that, and it's work. They're sweating it, mm. and pretty much you know whether it's under the Bodhi tree there. Or whether it's 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 in a, a, a temple or a monastery in Tibet, uh, or whether it's in a yoga center in Los Angeles, you see people who are there from belief, people who are there from attitude, people who are there to strain and work, and people who get it, who are there to just let go, let be. Mm. So you feel that meditation really can help us in difficult circumstances, and how? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, you know, and I, you know, I've been through some stuff. Uh, I I've been through my my first wife. We were together for twenty five, just shy of twenty five years, mm-hmm. and and seeing her go through uh, cancer and 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 dying, uh, and fortunately, uh, she also was a very deep meditative practitioner, and. Um, uh, and, you know, so was I. And, you know, we would, while we were going through that whole journey together, you know, every once in a while, she would look up at me from her bed and say, you know, how do people who don't meditate deal with this kind of thing? Yeah. You know, I would just shrug. I, I don't know. Um, I mean, that is the, and I've seen people who had what they felt was deep religious faith. And when they got hit by cancer or their you know, there. I, I had a, a, a neighbor one time who's who was a you know d- devout Catholic, and her her brother, who was I think seventeen, eighteen years old, a star athlete, was in a car crash, paralyzed from the neck down, and she stopped going to mass. Mm. She said, I, "She said I can't see how God could let this happen to my brother." So in that sense, her her faith was not deep enough to carry her through the crisis, um, because it was just faith. It was only faith. It was only belief. There's there's something that's deeper than belief, deeper than attitude, and that's that's the silence that you are at your core, and that's there even when you can't believe in anything. Okay, I don't believe in anything. I'm pissed off. I'm I'm whatever. I'm puzzled. I'm bewildered. Fine. Time to close your eyes. You know, it's five o'clock. Time to sit down and meditate. And then, oh yeah, there it is. The silence that's under everything. And which, in our deepest core, we are, and which is not touched by disease, death, change, despair, anything. Yeah, and and I think that's what's so important to get people to meditate before anything happens. Because if you try to, yes. I mean, I think you could still do it, but uh, you know, you, you just have a more difficult time, and then you lose that. And I you, hate to say, you, you, you got to do the fire drill before the fire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if if I have listeners that want to start meditating and just don't know how, mm-hmm. what are the first few little tips you can give them 
on starting. Take it easy. <laughs> is that it? <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's the first and the last tip is, is, is take it easy. Um, and you can, I mean, we could right now, okay, if you're driving, pull over to the curb <laughs> before you do this. Uh, but um, like right now, we could just follow a single breath, not try to concentrate or focus, but we can, you can close your eyes if you like. And now we're breathing in, just paying attention to it. That's wonderful. Okay, wait, I'm gonna, we, we got to breathe out and now breathe out and just follow it, pay attention to it. And that's it. You're done. Now, you may notice that having just in that simple way paid attention to a single breath coming in, going out, you might feel, oh, this is kind of nice. I think I'll do another one. Okay. Breathe in. Breathe out. Okay, and now you're done. Or do another one like that, just one breath at a time, which was all we ever have. It's always right now, as you may have noticed. So it's just this breath. So that simple, that simple, just easily paying attention to something that just easily turns your direction of attention within, and then whatever happens after that, it's none of your business. You're not in the driver's seat. You're in the passenger seat. Mm, that's wonderful. This is Tony Valen, host of Healing From Within. You can contact me, Tony, at TonyValen.com, or visit our website, HealingFromWithin.net. Follow the show on Twitter, at TVHFW. The show is also available on iTunes and YouTube. Just search Healing From Within with Tony Valen, or look for the Tony Valen channel on YouTube. We're talking to our guest, Dean Slider. Dean is a teacher and an author. You can learn more about Dean by going to NaturalMeditationBook.com, like Dean Slider on Facebook, and follow Dean on Twitter, at Dean Slider. Dean, I introduced you as an author. You have written many books. Tell us about them. Mm. Well, my first book uh, is called uh, Why the Chicken Crossed the Road and Other Hidden Enlightenment Teachings. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. <laughs> and I, had a, <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of fun with that one. Um, right, what I do in that book is I take nursery rhymes that we've known since childhood, uh, songs like Row, Row, Row Your Boat, Little Jack Horner Sat in the Corner, pop song lyrics, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, um, jokes like Why Did the Chicken Cross the Road or, or um, you know, Take My Wife, Please, uh, and so forth, and show how those things, just the, the, the you know, what seems like the, uh, the incidental junk of our culture really contains the deepest wisdom that the Buddha talked about and that Jesus and Socrates and Lao Tzu and all the great sages talked about. Um, my next book is um, The Zen Commandments. Yeah. Um, and what I do, did there was I said, okay, if, I went, if I'm coming down from the mountaintop and trying to tell people in case they want to know, how can I live a life of natural peace, harmony, effectiveness, enlightenment, maybe. Uh, how do I do it? Give me, give me the, you know, run it down one through 10. So that's the Zen commandments. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, a number of people have told me they like that book because it's so simple, so straightforward. Okay, one, two, three through 10. Mm -hmm. uh, my third book is another really fun one called Cinema Nirvana, Enlightenment Lessons from the Movies. Um, and I'm a, I'm a total movie nut. I've actually moonlighted as a film critic. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah. And my the, the, the wonderful woman I'm married to now is actually a film editor. Uh, so we're both, you know, total cinemaphiles. And uh, mm. what I did in that book was I took films, and not the ones that people would think of as meditative or spiritual films. You know, everyone told me, oh, you got to write about the Matrix. And you got, so all that's, that, I didn't write about any of that. I took Films like Jaws, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, um, The Godfather, The Graduate, um, Easy Rider, or 15 films that are all uh, pretty much classic American filmmaking that you'd think there can't possibly be any meditative or spiritual or enlightening con content here and showed, yeah, look closely, it's all there. 
So I had a lot of fun with that one. Uh, actually, if people go to my website, there's a there's a film clip, a video there, a half hour TV interview where I, I break down Jaws and show all the, the, the hidden spiritual teachings in Jaws. By the way, I assume that all of these are completely unintentional, that the filmmakers had absolutely no intention to put that stuff in there, but that it has to be in there because if it if if enlightenment is really what life is all about, then anything you look at, you look at a tree, you look at a rock, you look at a movie, and they're all going to reflect those qualities of enlightenment. You just might have to look a little closer than usual. Yeah, so just out of curiosity, what, what did you find about Jaws that was enlightened? <laughs> oh, um well, yeah, I've got about 20 pages on that one. But mm. the main, but the, the, the first, the premise that I start with is you ask people, well, what is, what's the theme of this movie? And they'll all say fear, terror. And that's because they're seeing it from the human's point of view. I look at Jaws from the shark's point of view. Okay. <laughs> and, and, which, by the way, if you, if you look at like the first three minutes of the film, while the opening credits are rolling, you're literally getting a shark's eye view. You're getting a, what's called a POV shot, you know, a point of view shot cutting through the water, through the seaweed. So it's as if you are the shark searching for food. And that's a very deliberate thing. That's, the, that's Spielberg and with his filmmaker genius putting you in the shark's shoes, so to speak. So it's a film from the shark's point of view. It's a film about hunger. Guess what? We are all hungry. We, caught, we keep trying to fill ourselves up with possessions, with knowledge, with new experiences, with, with whatever, you know, try to like, okay, if I eat enough jelly beans, if I have enough trips to Disneyland, if I have enough orgasms, whatever, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get filled up and then I'll be happy forever. And of course it, it doesn't work that way. It's like the old joke about Chinese food. Half an hour later, you're hungry again. Uh, so <laughs> So, so the, the shark is the perfect symbol of our insatiable hunger. He's just an eating machine. Uh, and that brilliant musical theme by John Williams, you know, whenever the, the shark approaches. That's It's like little shop of ours, you know, feed me, Seymour, I'm hungry. Uh, mm. We're, we're yeah. all like that. Why? Because we are because it's because we what we are at at root in what we are in our on the in our deepest essence which is awareness is boundless it's like this the screen is is boundless it has no edges and we keep trying to fill it up with things that are bounded we are infinite awareness trying to fill ourselves up with finite experiences the only thing that will fill us up is recognition of this infinite awareness that we already are and fortunately, that's much easier. People think it's harder. It's much easier to do than going out and scaling Mount Everest and making love to the, you know, the, the world's 10 most beautiful women or men or, you know, whatever floats your boat. But those, <laughs> things, those things are really hard to accomplish. You, you, can, you can accumulate, you know, so much, you know, so much wealth. And, you know, the stock market has a hiccup in China and everyone's getting nervous. They're going to, they're going to, you know, lose all their, all their money. Um, fortunately, you can be sitting in a nursing home, uh, you, you can't walk or see anymore, you can't put coherent sentences together anymore, but you can still reflect, you can still uh, turn your attention within to this field of boundless awareness, which you are, and rest in that. Yeah, Wow. So let's talk about your book, Natural yeah. Meditation, A Guide to Effortless Meditative Practice. What makes this book unique and is it essential for the user, uh, listeners to read? Yeah, you know, um, this this natural natural meditation is my fourth book, uh, which just came out this past February, mm. and and it is by far been my most successful book in terms of reaching the most people. Uh, I seem, for once, I seem to have written the right book at the right time. Uh, so I, you know, I've been interviewed on. Uh, you know, I've been doing lots of radio interviews. I've been in uh, not only uh, uh, magazines like Mantra and LA Yoga, which 
you know, we could expect. But I've been in In Style magazine. I was recently interviewed by Family Circle, which is about as mainstream as you can get. And uh, actually, I was just interviewed for, oh, the Oprah magazine. Oh, Good for you. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to be in their December issue with meditation tips for beating holiday season stress, uh, which is, you know, great. It, it's just really meditation is having this mainstream moment. Um, people, you know, when I, for, again, I've been teaching this stuff since 1970. And back then I had to convince people that meditation is not weird. It's not about you know, lying on a bed of nails or something. Now, by now, everyone knows that. They know it's not weird, but they still think it's hard. Yeah. So, so really, what my book, Natural Meditation, is all about is making it clear that it's, it's only hard if you make it hard. It's easy if you take it easy. And here's how to take it easy. Here are specific, as we said before, on-ramps. Here's how you can take some simple mantra or follow a single breath or gaze at the sky or rest your attention in the heart center and just allow that natural gravity to take over. It's, this is why the, the subtitle of the book is A Guide to Effortless Meditative Practice. And I had a lot of discussion with my publisher about that. I was hesitant to use that word effortless because I said, you know, is that going to make it sound like this is, you know, something cheap or like a late night infomercial come on, like not the real stuff, like the real stuff has to be hard. And finally I, I said, you know, I have to, I have to be honest, the most effective meditation. And I've got now 40 something years of experience to test this out myself is, is letting go is just relaxing in the passenger seat. Yeah. Why do you believe that uh, people make such a simple process so complicated? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> um, you know, there's there's two ways, at least two ways I can answer that. One on the more s- sort of surface level is just that those impressions are there. That's what they've heard. That's what they've read in a book. That's what the impression that, that they got, you know, just misinformation. On a deeper level... On a deeper level, it's because, um, you know, hanging on to our story, our narrative about I is such an ingrained habit. A really good exercise that I recommend to people is go to, uh, actually, I'm I'm back in New Jersey this week. I'm, I'm teaching a bunch of workshops in New Jersey. In New Jersey, we have the diners. So I recommend to people, go into a diner, whatever's the equivalent of that, by yourself, order a cup of coffee and a piece of pie, and just eavesdrop on the conversations around you, right? And some pe- and you'll hear people, I actually just did this. Uh, <laughs> I just had my breakfast out, and there was a group of New Jersey moms, suburban moms, and t- you know, I went to the, I was having the birthday party for my kid, and I spent so much time so I'm setting up the balloons and I this and one saying, you know, I was visiting my mom in the hospital and I felt the operative word in all those stories is I. Yeah. Right? If, yeah. You, if you take away the I, there's no story. The whole story c- collapses. I is like the keystone to all those narratives. And you hear those and you hear people and, you know, on and on. I, and I mean, I know it's a very regular, natural human thing. There's nothing bad about it. But after a while, you can get pretty tired of it. But it's good to eavesdrop on other people's because it's easier to hear them doing it than to hear yourself doing it. All this I, 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 I. Uh, you know, yeah. that it's, it's, if there's no I, there's no drama for the I to go through. Now, the I that they're talking about is not the deep, essential I, which we are at our core, which is pure awareness. The I, it's not, you know, the movie screen, the one they're talking about is a character on the screen. That, okay, I'm, you know, my name is Dean, I'm five foot ten, I'm 170 pounds, I was born then, now I've got this, I'm, you know, I'm having a little trouble with my, uh, with, with these two toes on my right foot, you know, whatever your particular drama is. Now, in meditation, all of that is transcendent. Hmm. It may be there somewhere at the surface, but you're not, you're, you're going beyond that to just pure, you're resting in pure beingness, where all that drama just loses its grip on you. 
And, and, you know, very often when I conduct group meditations, uh, you know, at the end of the meditation, we all open our eyes and I look around and I see this expression on people's faces very often. Uh, and it, and, and I can, and it's this sort of, wow, I'm back in this room. I'm back in this body. <laughs> wow. What a, what a curious thing, right. yeah. <laughs> you know, because when you settle deep into meditation, it's just all of that kind of, it kind of goes away. It just loses its its grip. So people create in order to hold on to that story that they say they're tired of, but it's the only thing they know how to do. They have to make up this myth. Oh, meditation sounds great. But someday when I'm retired and living on a houseboat, I'll do it because it's too hard to do now. It's exactly now while you're in the middle of raising the kids of working your job on Wall Street or whatever you do that you you need it. You need to have the um, you know, the in, in India, the, the great one of the great meditation texts of the Bhagavad Gita and its instructions given to a, a warrior just before he goes into battle, just before he goes into battle, he's told, OK, here's how you meditate. Wow. Yeah. And I agree. Meditation, we should do it now when we need it the most. Yes. Not when yes. we're laid back and it's all done. Um, mm-hmm. Did you find that different cultures valued meditation a little more than others? Well, you know, the answer to that is surprising. Um, um, and certainly when you go to India and Tibet, um, the, it's, value, it's given the highest value in a, in a, a very official way, mm-hmm. but, but very few people actually practice meditation. It's, it's probably practiced in, here in America, certainly where I live now in Los Angeles, it's probably practiced you know, more by regular people in, in, in India and Tibet because of certain historical, you know, it's a long historical story, but pretty much it wound up just in the monasteries and the convents. The monks and 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 the nuns were practicing meditation, and and you know the regular working people would uh, they would do their work, and you know they put some some uh, you know they put some pesos in the collection plate to help support the monks. Yeah. Uh, but they but the I really just that ideal we were talking about a moment ago. Even though the scriptures say the texts say that you know to live a successful active life to be a business person to be a warrior in the in the 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 battlefield of life you should be meditating in the east mostly that's not followed uh and and it's a really exciting and encouraging thing that in the west that ideal is is starting to become understood and more and more you have met you know one of my favorite examples is the seattle seahawks you know, they had a really good season last year. They went to the Super Bowl. The meditation is now an integral part of their training. Um, you've got, uh, you know, Phil Jackson, who coached the uh, the Chicago Bulls and then the L.A. Lakers to a, a whole bunch of NBA championships. Uh, he's a lifelong meditator and uses a lot of meditation in his training of the players. You have successful businessmen like Ray uh, what's his last name? Something with a D. Uh, <laughs> uh, who's you know a billionaire? He's like I think the the top hedge fund manager in the world. He's a lifelong meditator. Um, you've got uh, Etna Insurance, where the head of the company uh, started after a terrible ski accident that threatened his life. He started meditation, changed everything for him. Now he's got free meditation classes for everyone in the company, and that increase their productivity, decrease their sick days, and so forth. So it's really happening in this country. Mm-hmm. You uh, also are a chaplain at a maximum security prison. Tell us about that experience and how it helped. Oh, boy, that's the best. <laughs> yeah. yeah, people say, oh, you're so noble doing this, going and working in the prison. It's just, I love it so much. Um, I started in 2005 uh, while I was still living actually here in New Jersey, um, I started going in uh, to Northern State Prison, which is in Newark. If any of your listeners who have ever flown in or out of Newark Airport, uh, you've seen the prison. It's only about half a mile away. Uh, you can see the, you know, the guard towers. And um, I started going in there to teach meditation through the chaplaincy program. So officially I went in as a Buddhist chaplain. And uh, what I found was that 
these guys are just the best students because mm-hmm. and they have if they come to recognize it, which the guys that I've worked with have come to recognize it, being in prison is is a fantastic opportunity to practice, mainly because there is so much that you cannot change. There's so much you cannot control. You know, if 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 we're, you're just a regular person living in the suburbs and you go, okay, I'm going to sit down and meditate, but oh, it's too noisy. I'm going to move to a place that's quieter, and and then you don't you, you you never find the quieter place, so you don't meditate that day, right? Now in prison, you can't find a quiet place. You're living on the tier, and uh, you know the tiers of cells, and people are playing their radios and their TVs, and all. that goes on for about 22 hours of the day. No. It's just, it's just, uh, so, you know, since the beginning of my meditation career, I've had teach my teachers telling me noise does not matter. The the true silence is not an acoustical phenomenon. It's the nature of awareness itself and awareness is silent. Even when there's all kinds of noise going on. That's why I love to meditate on New York city subway system. Mm -hmm. The contrast of all that outer racket and the inner silence is just delicious. So my prisoners, they have no choice. You know, you could say people on the outside can say, well, I want to live a nice, mellow, spiritual, meditative life. But I've got this this person that I have to deal with who is such a pain in the neck. I have to get away from them. They're, you know, they're they're really uh, uh, spoiling my my vibe here. Right. If you're if if you if you're if your bunkie, you know, your cellmate is is a pain in the neck and there's an excellent chance that he is because uh, he's in there for committing some kind of felony or other. Um, he may be smoking cigarettes when you can't stand cigarette smoke. He may, may be a nonstop talker or worse. Uh, you got to deal with it. And yeah. so these guys learn that you can transcend everything. They become masters of meditation. So I worked with them every week, one night a week uh, from 2005 till 2010 when I uh, remarried and moved to California. Um, But I still come back several times a year and I always visit with them. I'll be seeing them actually tomorrow night, which I'm very happy about. And in my absence, the the group still continues uh, once a week. Now my old students teach my new students, which is, you know, great. Yeah. That's wonderful. So for the benefit of our listeners, can you tell them where they can find your books? Yes, they can find my books in fine bookstores everywhere. Please support your local independent bookstore. Uh, Otherwise, you can go to Amazon uh, and find all my books there. You can go to my website. Actually, you can read uh, sample chapters from all of my books at my website, which is naturalmeditationbook.com. You can see videos, hear audio, all kinds of good stuff. Oh, and you can see my teaching schedule. Uh, and I go all over the country, and I'm starting to go to other countries, leading workshops. Uh, I work uh, in wellness centers, yoga centers, and I'm doing some work with corporations. So, by the way, in case you're connected with any such group uh, and you're interested, contact me through the website. Let's set up a workshop, and, you know, I, I, I love doing this. In our last remaining minutes, what's next for Dean Slider? What's next for Dean Slider? Uh, is is teaching more workshops anywhere I'm invited. If you build it, I will come. I'm I'm going to Guatemala in January, uh, teaching a few workshops there. I'm starting to hear from people in in uh, Australia and elsewhere. And uh, just um, uh, had a recently had a meeting with my publisher, mapping out my next book, which I'm starting to get to work on. So um, yeah, I'm having a lot of fun. Well, Dean, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. I want to tell you that I actually learned some things from you, definitely uh, things that I just had to change my point of view and it's like a light bulb went on. Words I love to hear. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. Our thanks to Dean Slider. He is a teacher and an author. You can learn more about Dean by going to naturalmeditationbook.com. Like Dean Slider on Facebook and follow him on Twitter at Dean Slider. You are listening to Healing from Within with Tony Balin here on Block Talk Radio, airing Monday through Friday. 6 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Central. Visit our website, healingfromwithin.net. Contact me directly, Tony at TonyValen.com. Please follow the show on Twitter 
The show is also available on iTunes and YouTube. Just search Healing from Within with Tony Balin or look for the Tony Balin channel on YouTube. Thank you so much and love and light from all of us here at Healing from Within.